Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. A few years ago on Family Feud, Steve Harvey um, asked the contestants how 100 people surveyed would answer this question. When someone mentions the king, uh, to whom is he or she referring? Of those surveyed, 81 said Elvis Presley. Seven said Jesus or God. Quite a gap there. But at least he did beat out Martin Luther King Jr., who got three votes, and Burger King that got two. <laughs> it bears the question, if, if that term came to you, if you were on that show and asked that survey question, how would you answer? Who would come to mind if you were buzzing in or hitting that uh, whatever it is they hit? You know, I, the point is this, that everybody has a king, Everybody, whether they know it or not, have identified the king or not, everybody's king. That is, everybody has something that has, or some person that has say over their lives. It could be a dream, a goal, an idea, a philosophy. It could be a person. It could be um, a hope. It could be a reputation. It could be um, what people think of you. It, it, it could be any underlying thing in your life that's tucked away that you don't even know is influenced. It could be your image. And what, what, it's such a significant question that it, it's worthy of our consideration, consideration today, even as we consider this, these important verses that John is writing about in chapter 12 of his gospel, Life of Jesus, which I think is really about Jesus being king over all people, over all the world for all times. Here's the text, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. So, Jesus reminds us, or John reminds us in our text today, that King Jesus is a different kind of king. And we know that. We sing about him. We've sung about him this morning. And we will say with our tongue, with our lips, that Jesus is king. And I want to remind us all today by this text and by this chapter that he is worthy of being that one person that has say over every aspect of us. There's not one area that is left untouched. Consider these four aspects of King Jesus that makes him worthy of him being Lord over us. First of all, consider the authority of the king. John 12, 12 begins the last week of the earthly ministry of our Lord. You know, you only turn about five pages in John, and we have the life of Jesus has been provided for us, protected for us by the Holy Spirit through these 2,000 years. But exactly what we need, and probably all that we can handle, obviously. And up until this point, in, in the telling of Jesus' 
Jesus' ministry and the way Jesus, Jesus behaved, it was rather private. Now, he was always on the streets. He was always engaging people. But you remember when the, when the, when the disciples said, hey, Jesus, you need to go to Jerusalem and let people see what you can do. He said, nah, nah, not doing that. My time hasn't come. Uh, one time his family came to him to take charge of him because he thought he was just uh, out of his mind a little bit. They, they came to control him, but nevertheless, he continued on. Um, there was, there was a, a time when, when Peter was advising Jesus what to do with his life and ministry. Um, there, was, there were those times when Jesus healed people, and his response was, no, shh, don't tell anybody. And here we see a grand reversal when we come to this text, complete reversal of his style. Jesus publicly and purposely presents himself to the city of Jerusalem. He's coming here to die. And Jesus, this whole week, we're going to see, is in charge. Even on this day, he is absolutely in charge. He's not forcing anything, but he's just continuing on doing what the Father has called him to do to lay down his life. So he carefully guides the events. And in John 20, Jesus said, remember, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. This was, this was Jesus' purpose for coming into the world. It, Jesus did not die on the cross as a martyr. He died there as a substitute for you and me. And I want you here are at least three ways Jesus showed his authority. First, he shows his authority by fulfilling Scripture. Now, I, I've said this often. I keep repeating it because I hear people say, well, Jesus had to do this because the prophecy said it. No, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't study the prophecies to figure out what's next. What should I do now? They're in the prophecies because the prophets were told what was going to happen. So when Jesus appears on the scene, it gave evidence that the prophets were true and actually the word of God. Nevertheless, I want to add to that. It must have been quite, I don't even know the word to use. Uh, challenging for Jesus to read a passage like Isaiah 53 and recognize that he is the one that's the, that's the suffering servant and that will be led like a lamb is led to the slaughter. What was that like for him to read those prophecies? So they're in the prophecies because they were to happen. They didn't happen because Jesus tried to figure out what he's supposed to do. He's God's son. Jesus also his authority by his omniscience. In Matthew's account... Jesus tells the disciples to go into town. Here's where you're going to find a donkey, and there's a, a colt connected to it, a, a, a little one there too. Go get him. If somebody says, you know, what are you doing with my donkey? Just tell him the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing's hidden from him. He knows exactly everything about you. The Hebrew writer in the New Testament says that everything is laid bare before him to whom we must give an account of our lives. You, you, can't, you can't run. You can't hide. You can't you somehow snow Jesus. He also shows his authority by even riding on this donkey. Now, Mark tells us that he rides on a donkey that has never been ridden. So he gives us added information. Now, I don't know. My horse knowledge is limited to the first Saturday in May when the Derby is run. That's it. But I do know that donkeys have to be broken just like horses do. But here is the king of the universe, the one through whom and by whom all things were created, and he sits on a donkey that has never been ridden. And there's no challenge to him. 
because he is Lord. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Some of you, some of you can feel as meaningless as a donkey, in other words. And it doesn't matter who you are today, how lack of giftedness you may view yourself, how, how unprepared you are, how, how unlike it is for you to be used or be useful for God. I don't care who you are today. You put your hand, your life in the hands of God and watch what he will do. He's king and he's Lord. And there's no reason why anybody here has to, has to look at their life story or their journey and say, well, I think God's done with me. I think he's washed his hands of me. I hope that your presence here shows that you haven't completely bailed that you believe that God will do some wonderful things through you. Let him be king of your life. He won't control you, but he is in charge of you. And that means he works with us for his glory and good. Second, consider the humility of the king as well. The parade into Jerusalem that day must have been quite a scene. You know, Jesus the king was reigning on their parade, over their parade, uh, other gospel writers tell us that the people laid their cloaks before him to provide a path, and they cut palm branches nearby, and they waved them and laid them down as well. It was a scene of lowliness. Now imagine how, what a contrast it was for these Romans. Romans, so remember this is Roman occupation time. Israel's under Roman authorities. There were added Roman soldiers in town for Passover. This is Passover week. And there are hundreds of thousands of people. There are records from the first century that show over 200,000 lambs were slain Passover week. I mean, Jerusalem is packed. These Romans have come and more soldiers have come because the Jews could be hard to handle sometimes. And they wanted a greater Roman presence. And so here are these Romans. They've been exposed to other kinds of parades. When Caesar would come in on a, on, on a gold chariot, uh, led by a horse, uh, there, there, he would have on his finest. There would be all kinds of musical celebrations. Uh, there would be uh, foreign dignitaries there also in their regalia. And what a contrast for these, these Roman soldiers to watch this man, whoever he is, on this donkey, a don a, a, an animal of peace, not of triumph and victory, riding in on on this lowly animal and all these people crying, Hosanna, which means save now. What a con They must have punched each other and said, who is this guy? You know, this, this Jesus in whose name we worship today, who's our Savior, I mean, it's hard to get our heads around humility, isn't it? Because who dares say, yeah, I'm humble. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? It's really sticky and hard to even think about. Um, Those closest to Jesus had difficulty with it. Prideful disciples, at least three times in the record, uh, argue about who's greatest among them, right in the presence of Jesus. Peter's arrogance was on display when he advised Jesus, ah, don't go, don't, no, stop talking about dying. That's, That's not the kind of leader we want. And then Peter boasted that he would never deny Jesus after Jesus said, Peter, you are going to die me. I'm telling you, you're denying me. No, you got it wrong, Jesus. James and John's superiority was shown when they asked Jesus to call down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroy a whole town. That's what kind of love of Jesus they had in their lives. It was such a striking presentation as Jesus rode in humility that day. Matthew tells us the whole town was stirred. That word stirred is the root of our word seismology, earthquake. 
It's the same word that Matthew uses uh, earlier when the Magi come from the east to find the baby Jesus. And the Bible says all of Jerusalem was troubled, troubled, stirred. It's the same Greek word. And the reason is when Jesus shows up in your life, he shakes you to the very core. Nothing stays the same. He changes your habits, your pattern of thought, the way you see people, the way you engage the world, the decisions you make. He addresses every single part of our very being. And if he's not permitted to, he is an absolute king yet. You know, the world is being shaken today, whether you know it or not. There are trends that are taking place that, we're, that so encourage us. You know, verse 19 later in the text says, look how the whole world has gone after him. And praise God, even today the world is. You know, Christianity today is growing faster than the world's population. That's good news. There is also evidence that atheism has peaked and is declining. And 19, now, now not to a great degree, but today there are over 30 million less atheists in the world than there were in 1970. That's good news. Uh, also, um, while Europe has barely any measurable growth in Christianity, and really North America has vaguely any, there's barely minimal growth in North America. I mean, it's rock, the gospel is rocking two continents, Africa and Asia. They, they are the center of Christianity's growth today, and we praise God for that, and we praise for a revival to happen in our country so that we can be joining them in this great work in the world. Who would ever thought that a king of peace like this who rides into a city on a donkey would have the capability of shaking the world and shaking a life? He does. That's what he does. We're never left the same when he enters in. Keep surrendering and keep... Keep, I want to pause here. These things I'm telling you to do. I mean, you know, in so many parts of my life, he is still my hypothetical king. Is that true of you? I say he's king, but then my anger rises above me, uh, in me that, that is this selfish anger, and he's not ab actual king. Or a lustful thought comes in, and he's, I find, man, I, I thought he was king, but he's still hypothetical king at that moment. Uh, there's, a, there, there, there's a time when I think, I think, oh, I'm not egotistical. And then I say something, ah, he's still not king over my ego. It still has to be crucified over and over again. And I think that's true for most of us if we'd be alert to ourselves. We're here to praise him and honor him as king. We know he's a humble king and we want to be humble. And nevertheless, all this junk is still in us. And increasingly, we want him less a hypothetical king and more an actual king over all of our lives. And third, he's notice the magnetism of King Jesus. You know what the one of the greatest, even recently, the top tourist attraction in the world is? And you might think it was Disney. Ah, it pales. That's usually number 10 on the list of 20 million people a year. The Grand Bazaar in, uh, in Istanbul. It attracts between 250 and 400,000 people every day. 91 million people go there in a year's time. 
I think of all the places that you, you visited, I visited, and just had the drawing of the crowds there. When I think of the crowd here this day, I'm, I think of the traction of Jesus. Isn't it amazing? He, he, he just walks among people, and the crowds come to him. There's something about his kindness, his, his gentleness, his goodness, his person, his integrity, his character, his uprightness, that people are, are drawn to him. Um, there's a little interesting couple of verses John records for us. Uh, next, in verse 20, it says, Now were there some Greeks staying, staying among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. You know, they'd come for Passover. We don't know where they lived, but we know their roots are west. The, Gent the, the Gentile magi came from the east to find Jesus. These come from the west originally to, to, to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. They want to investigate him. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus was more attractive than philosophy. Remember, in, in Greek background, uh, that's where philosophers, that's, we know the Greeks for that, right? Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. Um, any of you take, remember your undergraduate days taking philosophy? Who took philosophy? Blech. Well, knowing you, you probably liked it, didn't you? Mr. Taylor, I imagine. But here was what somebody said about uh, philosophy. It's like a, a man in the dark at midnight looking for a cat that's not there. And that's how philosophy always feels to me. When we study human philosophy, there's, a, there's kind of a frustration trying to put your hand around. Those of you who have looked into the term postmodernism, you can't find even a good definition for that. Or post-Christian, everybody writes something. What does that mean? Well, here's a, here's a jab. And you, you walk away scratching your head, you know, trying to figure 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 it out. First Corinthians, this is what Paul writes. Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Human philosophy is bankrupt. It leaves us nowhere. And for these Greeks, Jesus was more attractive than Jewish religion. They would have come to town, the city there, walked into the temple, and they would have seen warning signs. No Gentiles could go in this area. They would have seen ritual, the ritual of the sacrifice of animals. But there was no relationship. By the time Jesus appeared, the Jewish religion had re been reduced to mere ceremony and ritual. There was always a remnant of Jews that understood their faith more deeply and were looking for at the actual Savior of the world, the, the, this one who would be their spiritual Savior. But they were minimal. The Jewish religion was empty. Now, th these Greeks say, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. The Pacific Garden Mission was established in Chicago in 1877 uh, to rescue homeless people and to preach the love and the truth of Christ. And so many, many people have come to Jesus in that mission. It still exists today. And in the early 1880s, many of you remember the name Billy Sunday, who played professional baseball for, at that time, the Chicago White Stockings. And uh, his life really descended, became an alcoholic 
and his life was ruined. And he came to Christ through this Pacific uh, Garden Mission in Chicago. And you can go there and see the pulpit because he became a preacher. He left professional baseball and became a preacher and one of the great historic preachers of our, of our, hist- of our story of America and evangelism. But you go there and you can see his pulpit and on there is a plaque that says in the King James Version, what we have just talked about, we would see Jesus. For the reminder of everyone who preaches at that spot that people are here to identify, recognize, see Jesus. That, that, that friends, is what the world wants. It's a, that's who they need to see. For the Greeks, they had found frustration in philosophy and religion. Jesus was the answer to their desperation. We are in a desperate world, aren't we? We see it. We fear for our children. And what kind of world theirs will be in a couple of decades, the next decade? Our grandchildren, what will they be facing and dealing with? We sense, we sense this heaviness everywhere, this cynicism about life. People are desperate and grasping for something. There's an, there's an American poet uh, by the name of, of um, Christian... Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? This, this, um, he's an atheist. I didn't tell you that part, did I? He's an American poet. He's an atheist by the name of Christian Wyman. And he writes a poem about his friends that, and all these gods. Um, he, they have these new beliefs. He writes, one turns to Catholicism, another turns to pantheism. A Jewish friend now worships the pantheon of paleo, keto, zone, South Beach, and bourbon. Meanwhile, another's Quote, exercise regimens are so extreme that she emerges, she merges with machine. A male friend turns to the god of sex. All of these friends use these gods to cope with their age-old challenges that we all must face. Dementia, doubt, despair, and death. And toward the end, he writes this. All my friends are finding new beliefs, and I'm finding it harder and harder to keep track of the new gods and the new loves and the old gods and the old loves. They so need to see Jesus, right? They need to see him. So what do these Greeks do? Well, they find Philip. Philip's a Greek name. They, they heard his name. They say, oh, he'd be the one for us to talk to. And so they find Philip, who in turn gets Andrew. Andrew, when he's ever presented in the gospel record, he's always getting somebody to Jesus. That's what he does. What a way to be known. Here's a guy always getting people to Jesus. What a way for Jesus to see us. You're always getting people to me. Thanks for that. Let's be a church like that, that all we care about is getting people to Jesus. Friends, the world needs to see Jesus. And so God gives them you and me. And when we call out of here, friends, we have to be Jesus. That's why we're called the body of Christ. His hands and feet, his mouth, his eyes, his ears. You know, we, we are his. He is in us. If he's king and he's Lord, then, then Jesus has to, has to come out of us, right? And embrace the world and love the people that you think are so unlovely. Start seeing them in the eyes of Jesus, listening to them with the ears of Jesus, speaking to them in such a way. And then we have the glory of the king as well. I assume that word got to Jesus from the Greeks. I don't know because his response is intriguing. Verse 23 Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life 
will lose it. In other words, he's saying, if you love your life, your own life here, more than anything else, you're going to lose it in the end. You, you, you can't hold on to your life. While anyone who hates their life, that doesn't mean actually hate it, just means by contrast, you love God so much more that your life, you realize, is, it pales compared to what, who God is and who to prepare for. Whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd was there, heard it, and said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now glory is this word that I've talked about many times. I keep coming back to it because it's such a key word for us to understand. We have this word glory all the time in Scripture, and we need to get it. Remember, the core meaning of glory is weightiness. It's weightiness. And it morphs into significance. And why it's important is because every human being is after glory. Everyone. Everyone is looking for their life to have significance and meaning and purpose, knowing their life counts for something. That's why this word glory is so important. Everyone wants that. That's, that's why reality TV is so popular. Because people think, if I'm being watched, I must be significant. And so there's this effort on social media. Social media is a great tool. We want to use it well. But be careful because so often it's about being seen and recognized and noted and common and liked and all that sort of thing. You know, that, that feels significant. You know, I, I, Jesus says, he's talking about his life, the seed a seed dies, falls to the ground. It, lo it looks worthless. When you, when you, if you're planting seeds this spring in a vegetable garden or, or, or a flower garden, I mean, it looks pointless. This little tiny minute thing you're putting in the ground, I don't do that very well. You know, I, I'm not very good. I planted bulbs once upside down. That's how good I am, you know. Um, but, but, but you know when it, a seed, according to God's design, is planted and all, all this beauty comes out of that. And Jesus saying, that's what I have to do. For all this beauty to come from what I'm going to, uh, about to do in a few days. And he does the same thing with us. That's why it doesn't make sense. We come to him and we die to self. What do you mean die to self? It means I am willing to be used by God to die to myself so that he can resurrect me and use my life for beautiful things in ways I could never use my life. And many of you can give a testimony about that very thing. He says, God, God booms back to Jesus. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And so he goes to the cross. You know, I've been captivated by the glory of the cliffs of Moore in Ireland. I've been captivated by scenes in our country. I've been captivated by the birth of my three children. Um, but according to Jesus, there's even a greater place to satisfy our glory. And that's the unlikely place of the cross of Jesus. How can that be? Because it's at the cross, you see that you're perfectly known and perfectly loved. That's what the cross is about. Verse 31, he, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. 
The cross is a place where we're exposed. Our sin is revealed, brought into the light and judged. Verse 27, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Why? Because of what's about to happen to him. You know, when Russell Crowe died at the end of Gladiator, it took him about five minutes and he saw wheat fields and beautiful flowers. When Jesus hung on the cross, what he saw was you and me. And all our badness was in him. All of our lust, all of our rebellion, all of our cheating, all of our our anger, all the ways that we have spurned God and, and worked against him in our lives, all of our darkness, all the worst things, all of that, all of that was in Jesus. He bore that. We were fully known. But at the very same time, we were fully loved. How can that be? Verse 23 says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men, all people to myself. At the cross, it seemed the opposite of glory. It seemed just brutal. Any, in fact, any other kind of cross is that. It, 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 is, it, is, it is to somehow undo and to shame. And Jesus bore the shame for us so that none of us have to live shameful lives. Shame so often dictates it doesn't have to. He's lifted up. You know, this grain of wheat has to die, fall to the ground and die. And what comes of it? This wonderful harvest. He's doing great things in, in you as you die to self, me as we die to self. The cross means that we can find this level of significance. You'll never get in your job. You will never get in money. You'll never get in your family. Will you get a little glory in those places? Yep. You'll get noted. You'll get a raise. Kids will honor you. You know, good things will happen, but not like the glory that comes here. Because in all those other areas, you're not perfect. And Jesus knows that about us, and yet he is deeply moved by us and loves us to the nth degree. There's an atheist um, uh, uh, physicist named Lawrence Krauss. In the New York Times, he wrote, Human beings are just, just a bit of pollution. If you got rid of us, then the universe would be largely the same. We're completely irrelevant. I, I have acquaintances that believe that. Haven't been able to break through yet. At the cross of Jesus, we hear the exact opposite. I love you more than you'll ever understand. And I know you more deeply than you know yourself. And he died. Over 100 years ago, there were a couple of men that were sailing around Scotland. And they anchored, went to the land, and they just looked around. I wanted to discover and explore. But by the time night fell, they were lost. So they knocked on the door of a cottage uh, to see if uh, somebody would give them a food and a place to sleep. Farmer opened the door, looked at them with suspicion, slammed the door in their face. They went to the next cottage. And that farmer was very welcoming, welcomed them in, gave them a hot meal, uh, put, uh, put them to bed for the night. And uh, it wasn't until the morning that it was revealed that one of those two men was Edward, Prince of Wales, to be King Edward V. Imagine how that first farmer would have felt when he found out that he slammed the door on the King of England. Most of the world slams their door on the king of kings. 
we're here because we haven't. But that doesn't mean that we're at the place we need to be. I'm just asking all of us today, I think the scripture is announcing, where is he still, this hypothetical king? And where does he have to be welcomed more fully in that we can truly exalt him in the way that is worthy of a king like this who has known us so well and loved us so deeply? Let's pray. God, we celebrate the cross of Christ today. It's so odd that such a heinous place of suffering and pain and violence and cruelty would be transformed by you, our God, into something that becomes beautiful for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And because of that day, Father, it's why these emblems that we're about to take are so precious as well. It takes us back to that scene to linger there for a bit and to recognize again the pain that was endured that we may have life today. So, Father, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. And we take it in our bodies, Father, as a statement that we believe Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world and the only one worthy to being our King and our Lord. And we will continue, Father, to express him to people in our lives and to live for him until the day he returns. May God be praised through and through by each of our lives until that glorious day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.